From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Now that an Adams County jury has found another Aurora police officer not guilty in the death of Elijah McClain, what could it mean for the paramedics who are next to stand trial? Because essentially what happened up to this point is they've all pointed to the paramedics and said that it was only it was ketamine. Nothing that these officers did was a cause of the actual death. Then what's the most conservative part of the state? We'll hit the road to answer a Colorado Wonders question. And later, the Denver Film Festival is back. We'll talk to a local filmmaker who turned her own toxic relationship into a haunting psychological thriller. I am a huge horror fan because I think it is one of the easiest genres to make commentary on social issues, to bring up some things that often are hidden underneath. Do you know it's time to say goodbye to your car, but you want to make sure it goes somewhere it'll be appreciated? Donate it to CPR, and then, just like that, your car has a new purpose, helping fuel all that it takes to run Colorado Public Radio. Your car's been good to you. Now let it be good to CPR. Find out how easy it is to safely donate your car on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. An Adams County jury has found two of the three officers who forcibly stopped Elijah McClain not guilty. The latest verdict came down yesterday afternoon. McClain's death became a rallying cry to push back against police brutality during racial protests in 2020, inspiring Colorado's attorney general to pursue criminal charges against officers and paramedics. Now that two of the officers have been acquitted and a third convicted of lesser charges, today we discuss whether Elijah McClain has received justice and what these verdicts mean for policing in Colorado. We are joined now by Omar Montgomery, who heads the Aurora branch of the NAACP. Welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me here today. Yesterday afternoon, we learned that Nathan Woodyard, the first officer who stopped McLean, was found to have no criminal responsibility for McLean's death. Woodyard initiated physical contact with McLean while McLean was walking home from buying iced tea at a convenience store. He had not committed any crime, but Woodyard still forcibly stopped him. What was your reaction to the verdict yesterday? Shocked, disappointed. Um, the Aurora branch of the NAACP stands with Shanine McLean and her disappointment in this verdict. Um, this, his action started the chain of events that resulted in the murder of Elijah McLean. He should have been held accountable. The jury found him not guilty, but the world knows and the world sees that it was his actions that resulted in the murder of Elijah McLean. Were you surprised that the jury landed where they did? Extremely. Uh, I was hoping for a different outcome. And um, I, I, and, and when I started getting text messages, I, I wanted to be there at the courthouse, but I worked full time. So I had to be at work mm. and started getting and started getting text messages. And I have to be honest, I was disturbed the rest of the day. I had to push through work, but I was People at my job knew I wasn't myself after hearing that verdict. 
Now, Woodyard admitted that he didn't follow his training in being hands-on initially with McLean. So in your view, are the mechanisms for accountability enough, or is there some other way that the entire system could be held accountable for his death and others like it? Yes, I really think there are further actions that can be taken against Woodyard. One, um, revoking his post-certification, and two, making sure he is not reinstated in at any police department nationwide. There should be some type of communication, whether if a person is found guilty or not guilty, that their actions, their demeanor, and who they are in their core is not the best representation for public safety anywhere. And for me, um, Officer Woodruff lands in that category. As soon as he got out the car, the first thing he did was dehumanize Elijah McClain. He didn't listen to him. He didn't talk to him. He didn't try to engage him. He just automatically put hands on him and then wanted to cry later that he tried to grab his gun. There was no evidence of that. This is a person who shouldn't be on any police department and needs to have his post-certification revoked immediately. Early on after McLean died, you advocated for more information then once the body camera footage came out, you helped draw attention to his death. You've been in touch with his family throughout this process. Do you feel that the fact that these officers have stood trial at all offered some degree of justice, or is this justice denied for Elijah McClain? I think it's a combination of both. First, I want to thank um, Phil Weiser and his legal team for um, the state attorney general, Phil mm. Weiser, um, for taking up the case. That, that was a very courageous act because it should have been handled in Adams County, but that's a whole nother story. And for him to take up the case so that Shanine McClain can see the evidence and can see what took place that resulted in the murder, and the world could see what took place that, um, that resulted in the murder of Elijah McClain is just as important as whether if it's a guilty verdict or not guilty verdict. And the reason why I say that is because this can help change the way we look at public safety. This can also help us figure out what future legislation needs to be in place so that one, we can protect the good officers who do the work well and eradicate those officers who shouldn't be nowhere near any aspect of public safety so that we can get rid of them as quickly as possible. This is what this case, I believe, will do long term. Now, you mentioned legislation. Yesterday afternoon, soon after the verdict, we interviewed State Representative Leslie Herrod. She's a Denver Democrat who has led the push for changes for how policing is carried out statewide. She acknowledged, however, that there are limitations of what laws alone can accomplish. Let's hear some of what she said. There's no law that will make people respect the humanity of other people. I wish there were. You know, I wish we could write a law that says when a black man is walking across the street that he is not innately dangerous to people. That is what got Elijah McClain into the situation in the first place. It was blatant bias and racism that is ingrained uh, in the society that got him stopped for simply walking to the store. There is no reason why he should have been stopped at, or engaging with officers or paramedics at all. As president of the Aurora chapter of the NAACP, what's your reaction to her words? One, um, I do agree with her, but there are things that police departments can do internally in their patterns and practice reviews. In their patterns and practice reviews, they can look at a situation and review a situation 
via the camera, via witnesses, and say, hey, this is an officer who doesn't have the demeanor to be on the force and is a danger to the public. We need to put, we need to put steps in place to make it easier for police departments to get those people out. The police union need to be online with that. Civil service commissions need to be online with that. City managers, mayors, elected officials need to make sure that they give the police department or public safety operations the uh, information and the policies they need to get rid of officers if they violated patterns and practices or their training anytime they've encountered the public. Now, Aurora is currently under state oversight to change its police and fire practices. This is another layer of accountability that has come as a result of Elijah McClain's death. It's the first time the state has done this, and it's perhaps the biggest experiment with public safety reforms in modern state history. So there's a lot at stake. You're a part of the Community Advisory Council for the reforms. One of the things the police and fire departments have to do is more training on de-escalation. How can the community help make sure that those changes get made and that these officers choose de-escalation? I think it's a couple of things. One, um, for this, for the for the consent decree and the community advisory council, we we do hold public forums quarterly. We need the public to come out to let us know what they're seeing and what they're hearing. Integrature, who is the organization that is monitoring the consent decree has a website where you can report good things that's happening, bad things that's Mm. happening. And we need to know both. And the reason why we need to know both is because if there's good behaviors out there that we can show officers that they can continue the model, that is great. And those bad um, encounters that take place, let's review them. Do we need to do additional training? Or is this evidence that this person shouldn't be on the force? The other thing that we can do is continue to vote. Today is voting day. Vote for those municipal um, candidates Mm. who support having an independent monitor in the city of Aurora immediately, who will not privatize our um, public defender's office, or who is willing to hold our public safety people accountable who abuse their power, while at the same time acknowledging and celebrating those who are in our public safety systems that are doing the work right. Now, that website you mentioned is auroramonitor.org, and you can report, as you said, good and bad instances that are observed. Yes, yes. And I just want to thank CPR. You have been there, and I know you don't um, probably share this, but you have been in the court every single day. And I think you reporting and sharing everything that has taken place just about every day during these trials help keep the public aware. So I want to thank you for sharing that information with the public. For a person like myself who can't be there every day, one of the first things I do is check with CPR to find out what happened Mm. in the courtroom that day. So thank you for the work you're doing. Well, thank you for that feedback. So to Representative Harrod's point, another thing the police have to do is roll out new training on detecting and preventing biases. In a public meeting, you recently delivered a word of advice to Aurora's leaders about the need to talk about systemic racism head on. Let's listen to an excerpt. If we are afraid to talk about race, 
we're going to continue to see some of the same problems we see in our public safety systems. This is an important component, especially in the city of Aurora, that we have to have those tough and courageous conversations if we're going to improve anything in the city of Aurora. Why did you feel it was necessary to speak up on that point? Um, during that point in the meeting, I think there were several back and forth. And by the way, this was one of the quarterly meetings for the um, Community Advisory Council for the consent decree. And there was a conversation about who should do the training, what the training should look like, and that sometimes when officers walk, and this was the statement that was made, walk into these training, they automatically feel like they're being called racist, they're feeling guilty, and they're feeling like they don't want to engage. Now, I wasn't there. This mm. is what was reported. So I don't want to put that out there if it's not true for all officers, but this is what came up during the meeting. And for me, if you begin to look at just about every single civil unrest in the modern era of the United States, it had to deal with policing, except for one that dealt with an election, which we could talk about another day. It was, <clears throat> it was the Rodney King case. It was the Watts riots, which took place because of a police encounter with the um, neighborhood in Watts. It was the um, Ferguson. It was Cincinnati. There's been um, a civil unrest in Miami. Most of it, if not all of it, had to deal with an officer, majority of the time white, but not all the time, and a black citizen, and many times unarmed, that resulted in their death. And if we cannot see that there are racial components in each of those um, situations and that race is a key component to solving some of these answers, we must have those courageous conversations. Go back to the Kerner report and the Christopher Commissioner report after the Watts riot and after the 92 civil unrest after Rodney King. They both point out that if we don't have a, a, a conversation about race in our community when it comes to public safety, we'll continue to see these things take place. And guess what? Their prediction was correct. In our final moments, is there anything else you want to say in reaction to the verdicts for these Aurora police officers? And as we anticipate the trials later this month for the two paramedics who injected Elijah McClain with a sedative that led to his death. I just want to say for today is Tuesday. You, I'm going to sound like a broken record. It's election Tuesday. If you're a person at the, and you're looking at your ballot and you're voting for people at the municipal level, please look at their record when it comes to public safety. Please look at their record when it comes to advocating for an independent monitor. Please look at their record if they're trying to privatize the public defender's office should be a no-no in any short in any sort of way. And vote for people who are going to protect us. Vote for people who's also going to protect those officers who are doing amazing work and put their lives on the line every single day. Our prayers and thoughts always go out to Shanine McLean, who has to relive the death of her son every single trial. And we also just want to send once again our thanks and gratitude to the State Attorney General Phil Weiser for not only the consent decree, but also being courageous enough so that Elijah McClain can have his day in court and so that the world can see that we still need to do what we need to do for police reform so that our communities can trust our public safety organizations. Thank you for your time. Omar, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Omar Montgomery is president of the Aurora branch of the NAACP. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. More reaction and analysis now after a second officer has been acquitted in the death of Elijah McClain. Tyrone Glover is a civil rights attorney and the president of the Sam Carey Bar Association. We asked him how this case differs from the first trial, which resulted in one officer being convicted and another acquitted. You know, I think that defense strategy in this one was different. They really, I think, leaned even more so into causation. And by really leaning on causation, that allowed them to put their client on and have their client testify and testify in a way that presents remorsefully, but also at the same time argue that that, you know, officers' mistakes and recklessness were not the cause of Mr. McClain's death. Officer Nathan Woodyard was charged and acquitted of reckless manslaughter charges. We asked Glover what the trial seemed to suggest about something far more basic. I think that it's very obvious that the conduct by the initiating officer was also assault, at least assault in the third degree. There's folks every day in our courts charged for much, much less. But I think even with the way this officer testified, there's an admission there that the escalation of, you know, physicality in all of this was unwarranted and he would you know, do it differently had he had to do it again. The two paramedics who gave Elijah McClain ketamine will stand trial next. Glover thinks finding an impartial jury is still possible despite the evidence and finger pointing from the first two trials. It'll be a new jury, and I'm certain, especially if you're the defense attorney on these upcoming trials, that you want to make sure that your jurors are not keenly aware of the defense's run in the previous cases. Because essentially what's happened up to this point is they've all pointed to the paramedics and said that it was only, it was ketamine, it was ketamine. Nothing that these officers did leading up to it was a cause of the actual death. I would dispute that. I think that the cascading series of events is ultimately what led to Mr. McClain's death. I think if you don't put him in that hold, you don't pile on top of him face down He doesn't vomit into his mask and swallow his vomit. You know, arguably, that dose of ketamine may not have been lethal. And I think that the prosecution proved that it was the totality of all these events that led to his death. But if you're the defense for or you're the prosecution for the paramedics cases, I think really leaning heavily on the ketamine, as was done for the defense, is going to be the play. As for jury diversity, Glover says that's not the most important thing to consider. Your jury is only as good as the questions and answers you're getting from the jurors. So I'm sure the judge and the lawyers will try to flesh out how keenly folks have paid attention to this media coverage. I think it will be difficult. You want people that are representative of the community and the folks that are representative of this community, I think are tuning in because it is something that affects the community. So I think 
what we're going to see are jurors who know what's been happening, know what's been going on, have probably been following it, but ultimately say they can be fair and impartial. You want juries to be comprised of a jury of your peers. That means a jury that looks like the community. And Adams County, which you know straddles half of Aurora, to have a jury that is comprised only of white people is not representative. Um, but having a representative jury is not necessarily going to mean you're always going to get a fair jury, which means mm. it really comes down to the voir dire, the jury selection process, and whether you can really get down deep to those jurors' biases and to ensure that you have the most fair impartial people serving. And it's just hard because you're really depending on folks being forthcoming and I think brave enough to be forthcoming with the answers they're giving during that process. Tyrone Glover is a Denver-based civil rights attorney and president of the Sam Carey Bar Association. Shortly after the verdict in this second trial, Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine, spoke with Nine News. It's to be expected because of how the first trial went. Um, This is their pattern, this is their practice, and they are sticking to the way that they do things. Mm -hmm. Was this what you expected? Yes. You're super emotional in the courtroom where you even needed to take a moment, and you sat down, you stayed in the courtroom for a little longer. What was that about? Because I wanted to hit somebody. I wanted to kick something. I wanted to take out my vengeance on the ones that murdered my son because... There is no accountability within the justice system, and today proves it once again. That was Shanine McLean, Elijah McLean's mother, reacting to the acquittal of Officer Nathan Woodyard in the death of her son. Again, the next people to stand trial in the death of Elijah McLean will be the two paramedics who gave him ketamine. Jury selection begins the last week of November. Find ongoing coverage and reaction at CPR.org. When we come back, where is the most conservative part of Colorado? We hit the road to answer a Colorado Wonders question. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The state's highest mountain takes its name from the Colorado Territory's sixth governor, Samuel Elbert. He was son-in-law to disgraced territorial governor John Evans, whose role in the Sand Creek Massacre forced him to resign. But that wasn't the only time the state's highest office was the family business. Elias Ammons served a term 100 years ago. His son Teller served two decades later as Colorado's first native-born governor. And then there's the Adams family. Brothers Alva and Billy Adams each had three gubernatorial terms. Adams County is named for Billy. Alva got his name on Adams State University in Alamosa. His son, Alvin B. Adams, never made it to the governor's mansion, but served twice in the U.S. Senate and got his name on a water diversion tunnel under Rocky Mountain National Park. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health... This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Today is Election Day, a reminder to return your ballot by 7 p.m. Politically, Colorado used to be a purple state, but has trended deep blue in recent election cycles. That had one listener wondering what part of the state is now the most conservative. 
CPR's Spencer Brooklyn tracks down the answer. To answer where the most conservative part of Colorado is, you first have to figure out how to define it. Because of the increasing number of unaffiliated voters in Colorado, I think it's important to look not just at voter registration, but at election results. That's Jeremiah Berry. He's a nonpartisan legislative attorney who advised Colorado's Independent Redistricting Commission, which drew new political maps in 2021. They were tasked with measuring the competitiveness of each proposed state legislative district. Not surprisingly, the two most conservative districts are the two House districts in northeastern Colorado. Together, those two districts cover a full corner of the state, from the Wyoming, Nebraska, and Kansas borders to the eastern half of El Paso County. The area is sparsely populated, full of ranches and farms and small towns. Colorado does have many other rural districts, but what makes these two different is that they draw very few voters from cities or suburbs. And they lack the kind of liberal resort towns that make mountain districts more politically mixed. I am here heading to the reddest part of Colorado, getting into our news vehicle called Quoty. After driving northeast for a couple of hours, I stopped by Buffalo Springs Ranch in Washington County. I wanted to meet up with the man who represents one of these districts at the state capitol, Republican Richard Holtorf. When the legislature is not in session, he manages his family's ranch. Take this on around. No, you're not turning them out. You're putting them in the bullpen. In the middle of talking politics, he had to stop to give an employee some instructions. Are we trailing the bulls out today? Yeah, go get them and trail them before sundown. You got about four mile and four and a half mile trails, so you guys are going to have to get after it. Well, I got it. I'm going to set up one thing. What's that old song? Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Mama screwed up. Back at the state house, Holtorf has focused on agriculture issues and regularly urges his Democratic colleagues to respect the rural-urban divide. If you want to keep your city slicker policies in the big town, keep it. But don't bring your mess out here and mess with us. Let us live our lives and do the work that we want to do, that we love to do, and just stay out of our way. To get a better sense of the people behind this area's politics, he suggested talking to his neighbor, John McCord, who lives a few miles away along a dirt road. McCord's more than a hundred-year-old house sits in a big yard where chickens, geese, ducks wander around, along with his dogs. I never lived in town. I hate towns. I was born and raised in a junkyard, which you could kind of tell. McCord is a retired truck driver, and several large semi-beds sit in a field along with other tractors and trinkets and metal scraps. He lives with his wife and adult daughter who has cerebral palsy. He follows politics closely and says he's glad this area is very conservative. And I'm always willing to listen to the other side but and bring up points why I'm like I am, and I'll listen to their side. He's pro-Second Amendment, pro-Trump, pro-border security. He loves his community, but not how divided the country is. There's people who literally hate and ready to punch a Democrat, and Democrats who 
same way. You can't live like that. We're all Americans, and we should try to come to some common ground. I really believe if things don't change, we're going to have a civil war or a national divorce. I, I would be for a peaceful divorce where all the blue counties, they, they didn't get the whole state. All they got was the blue counties. There was actually an organized effort in this part of Colorado 10 years ago to break off from the state, but it failed in the early stages. In recent years, more people from urban areas have been moving to the region. They just like the quietness out here. There's not so much hustle and bustle. I don't know if it's safer or not. There's stuff going on in every town, no matter if you hear about it or not. 20-year-old Josie Nielsen works at the bookstore and cafe in downtown Fort Morgan. It's an hour east of Greeley and one of the largest towns in the area, with around 11,000 residents. She says Fort Morgan's tourism boomed last summer after it was featured in HGTV's show Hometown Takeover. We feel like we're on a different planet. We've never been to this part of the United States. Yeah, I really thought the Rockies would have been a little more rockier than this. Yeah, we're not in the Rockies. But this is going to be a really big adventure for all of us. Nielsen says the show led to more community partnerships, projects. Everyone has that sense of pride, you know, with their ranches and stuff. Everyone works together and wants to help. Her colleague, 16-year-old Adelie Bridges, says she doesn't follow politics much, but says the high school kids around here tend to be more liberal than their parents. She's enjoyed growing up in Fort Morgan. It's pretty nice. It has that small town feel like a lot of bigger suburban cities. There isn't as much to do and there isn't as much like community stuff. Like I have friends up in bigger cities that come here and they say like, wow, it's so weird. Your town is always doing something and they support small businesses so well. A few doors down from the bookstore, I'd met with Republican County Commissioner Gordon Westhoff over tacos at a popular restaurant. He says his priority is preserving local autonomy and the way of life, which he says hasn't really changed that much since he was born here. As for being the reddest part of Colorado, he's not surprised at all, but says politics isn't the biggest driver here. A lot of people just don't really care, and they don't, they're tired of hearing about it. You know? And then some people are really concerned about it, that you know the, the country's going downhill is what they call it, or going to the trash can. Different other adjectives too, but you know, we're all we're all trying to get along. Still, Westhoff says Colorado's increasing shift to the left has left his own wife pushing to move away to a conservative state. Westhoff isn't ready for that yet. He says the red parts of Colorado still have some fight left in them. He holds out hope that maybe someday the rest of the state could swing back in their direction. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. What do you wonder about Colorado? Send us your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may answer it on air and online. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. It's not only like paint on a wall, it's like culture on a wall, and that's meaningful. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Janice Henderson Investors. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Should you find yourself in a horror movie, everyone knows that you never say, I'll be right back when you leave a room or decide to take a stroll down into the basement. But what happens when you're living your best life one moment, then find yourself enmeshed in something much more disturbing the next, where even answering the telephone may not be as simple as it seems? That's the journey that Steph Hombo takes the audience on in her new film, Soft Liquid Center. It's featured this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. She recently spoke with my colleague, Anthony Cotton. Hey, Steph. Hi. So, or should I say, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. yes. So we are hearing the clip and you're kind of smiling and then you actually get the look of concern on your face. Like, you know, wonder what's going on in your head when you hear that. Well, we're diving in deep. That is such a tense moment of the movie. And that music is so visceral and two quick but emotion-evoking words, hello and help. I was even wondering at one point watching the film, like, is there some clearinghouse for really eerie sounds? And Actually, all of the music is written by our composer, Roberto Garza, and he created all of the sound, all of the music from scratch, and he's incredible. Um, We mentioned earlier that the movie is a journey. I'm just not sure into what. Like, you know, where where are you taking me with this film? Well, I think it's best described as a psychological thriller that we start— building the tension from moment one and we really let some shots languish and we really create an environment that is similar to a frog in water where you don't realize that the heat is rising until the heat has risen and we're all just boiling together wondering if this is the end. It's a love story too. (laughs) Sure. One could describe it that way. We'll, we'll let the audience uh, mm-hmm. decide that when they see it. Um, this seems to be part of a relatively new genre film called Mumblecore, which features younger characters, minimum action, lots of dialogue. And that spawned Mumblegore, where the characters and their relationships spin off into something scary. Was that the vibe you wanted for this? Or like you say, is it something more psychological? We didn't set out with a genre other than horror because we knew we were taking a story based off of some of my own experiences that a lot of my community didn't believe or understand the gravity of. And so we knew we wanted to take a real life situation and heighten it. So horror was the perfect genre 
I am a huge horror fan because I think it is one of the easiest genres to make commentary on social issues, to bring up some things that often are hidden underneath. And so we added a supernatural element to spookify an already spooky situation. And a lot of the imp- the dialogue was improv A lot of, we started off with an outline and then moved into, we honed things a little more as we went along. So we didn't discuss the mumble gore genre until we started having conversations with people who had seen the movie and then asked us if it applies. And I think it does in some ways, but it was never the goal. Okay, so and horror as a way for commentary, because I, I think of Get Out, mm-hmm. and that kind of was along that in terms of racism and things like that. Yeah, and horror has often been uh, an avenue to discuss sexual repression. They often, the trope is that the virgin lives, so the people who have sex die first, which is also a commentary on our puritanical nature in the in this society. Um so I think it's an a vehicle where people write it off, and yet it can have weighty discussions around sex, race, gender, uh, wealth class. A lot of those things come into play in horror movies where also anyone dies if you stab them 15 times. You know? <laughs> We're all just made of flesh. Right. And it's kind of along those lines... I'm never really sure of the significance behind some of the things I'm seeing. Like in the film, there are shots of branches, like, you know, Mm -hmm. just randomly falling in in a forest. And we talked about staples earlier. I'm wondering, is that that another staple, the idea of seemingly random things that carry deeper meaning, maybe as a way of playing up anxiety or, or fostering fear in the audience? There's a quote from the movie that's also in the trailer about if you're living with someone and there's a creek in the house or there's a branch against the window that that can be explained away by a pet or by old foundation or things like that. When you live alone, it's much more difficult to either explain it away or bring down that anxiety if it's starting to heat up. And sometimes it is just a branch and sometimes it is something more. Yes, and we are actually going to hear that clip in a moment. Uh, Something else I wanted to ask you about, water. There is water, water everywhere in the movie. There are streams, there are paintings of boats on the water. In one scene, you're wearing a T-shirt with the word sail away. One of the first indications that something might be amiss is when you come home and you find the water's running. What's up with water? I think water is one of the most powerful and gentle things. There's a lot of themes that are two sides of the same coin in the movie. And water can both clean your dishes, you can take a shower, you can... um, water your plants. And also it is the source of natural disasters. It is one of the truest expressions of emotion with tears. And so I think it can be a deeply menacing thing and a deeply healing thing. And it is made of the same components in both situations. So speaking of tears, let's let's hear a clip where your character, Steph, 
is confiding to your friend, Alex. Yeah. Also, you know, when my eye is water, I'm not crying. Don't cry. Yeah, I'm crying. Um, You know when you just, like, the house settles or... You ever been, like, there's lots of wind and, like, a tree branch scratches mm -hmm. against your window? Mm -hmm. And if there's somebody else there, they could be like, but it's a windstorm and that's a tree branch. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you live alone, you have to tell that to yourself. And I don't know. I don't always feel like the most reliable source. Well, I think you are a reliable source, though. You know? You know yourself. And I think that you have made decisions that are good for yourself, that have led you here, you know? And you can trust those. But even then, there's something else that might be at play. So here you are preparing dinner with another friend. Yeah, I was thinking the other day when she was telling that story about feeling weird and just feeling like things, like things were, people were watching her, but she couldn't see them. And Wait, Alex is feeling pretty weird in my own house? But when we were hanging out. At my house, we were eating pie. You made Alex eating pie together at your house here? Yeah, the house that I have been starting to feel weird in and like having weird <clears throat> nightmares in and what? feeling like things are happening that I am not doing. And Well, I don't, you know, the last time we hung out, we definitely had that pie from that, oh my gosh, that really good bakery. And it yeah, was that, that yummy, yeah. yeah, it was that really yummy cherry pie, but that was definitely just you and me at your house. No, Alex was sitting right next to you. No, she wasn't. So again, I just love watching you hear all this because I, I got, one of the hardest things I would think for an actor to do is selling me on the idea that your character has no idea what's happening or, or what's going to happen next. Like, how do you get yourself into that place where you're just as shocked or befuddled by what's going on? as the audience is. Well, I think we've all had moments where we are sure something has happened or something is happening. And from somebody else's perspective or with somebody else's lens, they interpret something really differently. They see something differently. Um, There's also a great quote about how memory is the kindest editor. I don't think it's always kind, but I think it does soften the edges and we all remember things differently, even if there are some similarities. So during the filming, it just came really natural to have conversations as myself where somebody else had a really different experience or perspective, even though we were both existing in the same space or having the same reality at the same time. No, we talked about the idea of this kind of being a love story. And I, I want to get back to the idea that this started kind of based on your real life experiences without necessarily spoiling the movie or giving out too much. Like what, go back to that. What, what was happening in your life? I had an experience with a relationship that was, full of 
manipulation and abuse and gaslighting where I know something would be true and the person I was in the relationship with would tell me to my face or tell my community that that thing was not true. My boundaries were constantly pushed. The narrative was constantly changed. And I think that's a lot of people's experience, especially women or people in a position of lesser power in that power dynamic. And um, there are the hardest crime to, I won't say the hardest, one of the hardest crimes to prosecute is stalking because you need a written document of somebody threatening violence or threatening your life to get a restraining order where stalking is just the presence of someone that they could do anything at any time to you. And that looming black cloud is maddening. That can be psychologically that can psychologically wreck you in any situation. And so in this experience I had with this relationship, I never knew if he was going to show up at my house with flowers or burn my house down. And it never got to an extreme place. Um, but that threat is almost scarier. I use the word almost seriously, almost scarier than the act of violence itself. So, and I obviously you haven't said like how long ago this was, but the idea was this somehow cathartic making making this movie? Deeply. I made it with my husband, Joe, and his co-director, Zach, and I deeply trust them as my friends and my artistic partners. And we knew we wanted to take this story of mine and then, like I said, amp it up so then it couldn't be questioned. You can't question a the water running. You can't question the light being on if you knew you turned it off. And um, there are some open-ended areas in the film that felt really nice to leave in the filming process rather than take home with me and continue to hold on to in my story. Like you mentioned earlier, horror was kind of the vehicle for this because I was wondering like, well, what was young Steph like that this was where she chose to go in terms of being a filmmaker, that it wasn't, you know, Barbie and Ken looking dreamily into each other's eyes. You know, is is this always part of you? Or although I'm curious what you would do with Barbie <laughs> as a filmmaker. Uh I I have always had big emotions. I've always been a real zero to 60 person. My emotions feel really clear to me. I did not feel like I could always express them as a child. I grew up in a heavily religious environment. My dad was a pastor. And so I started to experience emotions as physical ailments. So my sadness would be, I would get really nauseous. My anger would manifest in a headache. And that core of feeling these deep emotions and not having a place to express them or not being able to be honest in them led me to a really artistic journey. And I have not always been a horror fan, especially when living alone. I was like, I can't watch this because I'm going to think every monster's in my closet. Um, and especially in the last seven years, uh, living with a partner who I can be like, can you go make sure the door is locked? Right. Um, 
I have this deep appreciation for it because it 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 feels like it kind of sneaks in the back door. It's not hitting you over the head with these issues that are rising to the surface, especially in 2023, but it allows people, it allows me to watch a movie and then start to reflect back and think, what does this show up like in my real life? If it's not a monster, is it an idea? Is it how I treat someone? Is it what I saw in down the street? And it also feels like it has a really dedicated fan base. People really take chances on horror. And we knew that this would be a risky movie with uh, the slow burn at the beginning and with some of the open-endedness of it. And so we wanted to reward the audience that takes risks and and push it through this genre. I will admit that it took me a while to get through it because mm-hmm. I, I was just so anticipating the whole time. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, who's who's in the closet? The film has has been making the rounds on, on the festival circuit. It's gotten pretty favorable reviews. Now it's being shown at home in the Denver Film Festival. What does that mean to you, given that it really is a, a Colorado-centered effort, you know, from top to bottom? Like you say, your husband's in it your friends, the actors are local. How important is that? Deeply. I think Denver is still doing its best to take risks on art. And there are a couple artists that I really see pushing things forward in the theater world, in the music world, in the film world. And it feels so good to have the Denver Film Festival accept it and take this chance on it because I've been going to the film festival for the past six years and really admiring the films on that screen and what they accept into the festival. Um, I have deep respect for the curators of that festival. And we have only screened in places that are an airplane ride away. So this feels like the chance to see it on the big screen for our friends and our family. This was a real blood, sweat and tears effort. We made it in with under a $6,000 budget. We thought it would take eight months to shoot. It took three years to shoot with a pandemic in the middle. So it feels so good to have it done, to have it on the big screen, and to have people we love who supported us along the journey be able to see it that way. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Denver filmmaker Steph Hombo talking with my colleague Anthony Cotton about her new film, Soft Liquid Center. It's featured at the Denver Film Festival on Saturday. And a note, CPR is a sponsor of the Denver Film Society, which puts on the festival. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.